Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So if voluntary vaccines don't work on skeptics and mandates don't either, what will? The lead starts right now. New CNN polling reveals a majority of Americans support the new COVID vaccine mandates, but could the new measures force skeptical Americans farther away from the vaccine? Then, President Biden goes west, young man, in hopes of boosting embattled California Governor Gavin Newsom hours before the recall race ends, plus bracing for violence, but hoping for the best. The fencing around the U.S. Capitol is about to go back up, uh, go back up days before a right-wing rally. As police today arrest an armed neo-Nazi blocks from the Capitol. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we begin today with our health lead. While President Biden's new COVID vaccine or testing mandate on businesses continue to face fierce opposition from some Republican governors, a new CNN poll shows that the majority of the American people support these mandates for workers, for students, and for everyday public life. And now we're learning the Biden administration is expecting to make more announcements in the fight against the Delta variant as the death count keeps climbing up, now averaging 1,600 COVID deaths a day, 1,600 in the United States. And more than 100,000 hospital beds are currently filled with COVID patients nationwide. Some good news? Well, we are seeing case numbers at the lowest point in three weeks. In New York, today's the first day that you will have to show proof of vaccination to enter restaurants or gyms or entertainment venues. And as CNN's Athena Jones reports, today's also the first day that all New York City students are welcome back in the classroom since last year. This is the day we have been waiting for. A pivotal day in New York City as people of all ages face new requirements aimed at beating back COVID-19. And many of the city's municipal employees return to their workplaces. You're going to remember in the history of this city, this day, September 13th, 2021, a day that was a game changer. Proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test now required at indoor restaurants, bars, gyms and entertainment venues. With companies that don't enforce the rule facing fines. Children under 12, too young to be vaccinated, will have to mask up. Same goes for the nation's largest school district, where all students and teachers must be masked as full-time in-person learning begins. And all public school employees must receive at least one dose of vaccine by September 27th. Meanwhile, at least seven schools in Fulton County, Georgia, reverted to virtual learning today due to a spike in COVID cases. With the CDC director warning of the Delta variant, I would say dangerous is more transmissible, right? If, um, if it is more transmissible, we have more kids with disease, we have more kids with symptomatic disease, and more kids ending up in the hospital. Experts say widespread mandates could be key to ending the pandemic. I think that if you get trusted public messengers who put aside political ideologies and convince people to get vaccinated, the other way to do it is to have many, many more mandates. 
One reason President Biden announced companies with more than 100 employees must require they be vaccinated or tested weekly. We've heard a lot of feedback from the Business Roundtable and others that this will help create safer workplaces. But blowback was swift. The problem is that I'm trying to overcome resistance, but the president's actions in a mandate hardens the resistance. And after too many maternity ward staffers at one upstate New York hospital quit over vaccination requirements, a stunning step. We are unable to safely staff the service after September 24th. The number of resignations received leaves us no choice but to pause delivering babies at Lewis County General Hospital. And there are nearly 100,000 people hospitalized with COVID nationwide. Intensive care units in several places are overwhelmed, even maxed out, like in Alabama. The Washington Post reporting that a man who was having a cardiac emergency died because he was turned away from 43 hospitals, none of which had an ICU bed available. Jake? Athena Jones, thank you so much. A brand new scene in poll in the politics lead gauges our support for mandatory vaccines in the U.S. right now. I want to bring in Harry Enten. He's CNN's senior political writer and analyst. So, Harry, this new poll shows that more Americans are in favor of requiring vaccines. Break it down for us. Sure. So, look, take a look right now across different specific um, actions that you might take. Attend school in person, attend a sporting event, work in person, shop in a grocery store. Look at that and compare those numbers to April. You see increases across the board. Now, 55 percent attend school in person, support a vaccine mandate. Same for attending a sports event. Work in person, 54 percent. Again, a majority. Even shop in a grocery store, we only have a minority. Look at that increase, a 15 point increase from April. So on these specific things, you do see majorities on most. But broaden it out to the general idea of a vaccine mandate. And here what we see is far less agreement, universal agreement. Look at this. Overall, acceptable to increase vaccinations, a vaccine mandate for everyday activities outside of the home. Only 51% say it's acceptable compared to 49%, well within the margin of error, unacceptable infringement on rights. And look at the partisan break between those two. They're basically mirror images of each other with Democrats very much in favor, Republicans very much against. And I think when you saw Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas speaking that Republicans are against it, you really see it on this question. Yeah, he said it hardens opposition. It hardens skepticism. The poll also asked about children wearing masks in schools. There's been a lot of debate about this. What are the results of that? Clearly in favor. That's what we see. We see Americans are clearly in favor of that of clear majority, 63 percent. Both Democrats and independents are both in favor. Republicans are not at just 33 percent. But, hey, if you can get 33 percent of Republicans to go along with 93 percent of Democrats on anything, that's pretty impressive. And that's where we see a lot of folks in favor of masks being required for kids in classrooms. And, Harry, this poll also looked at a post-pandemic world and asked if mitigation efforts should keep going once COVID cases go down. How do people respond to that? They agree. We should have different things going forward. If there's one thing the pandemic has done, it's not just changed things for now. It's changed things going forward. You can see the list on your screen right here. Majorities on a slew of issues, staying home if you're symptomatic, people mask on mass transit, schools offering remote learning, or perhaps my favorite and one of your producers as well, movies debuting in theaters and streaming at the same time, 81%. I really like that because I like the idea that I can stay home and I don't necessarily have to go to a movie theater and spend 15 or $16 as you have to do in New York in order to watch a movie on its first run. Well, that, that's just, that's a sloth. That's, that has nothing to do with health, Harry. That's, that's, 
Maybe, you know, I'm a little bit lazy. I like staying at home, drinking my Diet A&W cream soda and enjoying a good movie on my couch. All right. Well, that's, that's a nice side benefit of this all. Harry Anton, <laughs> thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. You, Let's sir. discuss all this with Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the dean of Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha, good to see you as always. We saw that most Americans are in favor of vaccine mandates for work, and the overwhelming majority said the pandemic's not over, and they're still taking extra precautions every day. So what is your takeaway from these numbers? Yeah, Jake, thanks for having me back. You know, my takeaway is, while everybody agrees the pandemic is not over, we all want it to be over. I mean, I think people are ready to put this pandemic behind them. And the fastest way to do that, the most effective way of doing that, is getting most Americans vaccinated. And so policies that really push, vaccina- push, push vaccinations forward, I think, are popular for that reason. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, he's the former commissioner of the FDA. Uh, he's on the board for Pfizer, I think, also. He, su- he said Sunday he believes President Biden's new vaccine requirements ultimately might discourage uh, some skeptics from getting vaccinated. Take a listen. In the near term, a lot of businesses that might have mandated vaccines are now going to sit on their hands and say, I'm going to wait for OSHA to tell me just how to do it and give me more political cover. So in the near term, you could actually discourage some vaccination. Do you agree? You know, I have enormous respect for Dr. Gottlieb. I think the experience so far has been uh, that when people have put in mandates, uh, it has worked that 98, 99 percent of employees get vaccinated Companies that sit on their hands and choose not to are just creating an unsafe work environment. So I I don't know how much of an impact it's going to have uh, in the negative. I do think it's going to provide political cover for companies that want to do a vaccine mandate, but we're struggling to figure out how to do it. So Dr. Fauci, President Biden's chief medical advisor, was asked if he would support vaccine mandates for airline travel. That has not been instituted uh, yet. Here's what Fauci had to say. I would support that if you want to get on a plane and travel, with other people that you should be vaccinated. It's an easier call constitutionally, since the president clearly does have uh, powers when it comes to interstate commerce that that are uh, less debatable than other uh, other steps he's he's talked about. Do you think it's inevitable at this point that airlines will require a COVID vaccine? I do. I do. I think that the reason the White House, I suspect, didn't do it is because we don't think there's a ton of spread happening uh, on airplanes. That said, Jake, you know, I would feel more comfortable flying if I knew everybody around me was vaccinated. And I think over the upcoming months, uh, more and more airlines are going to require either vaccinations or a negative test. And I suspect the administration is going to push them towards that direction. We're also coming up on the September 20th start date for the Biden administration's booster shot uh, rollout. Not without controversy. There are two departing leaders of the FDA. They were among a panel of international scientists who say COVID vaccines do not currently show a need for boosting. What do you think? Yeah, I, I read that uh, editorial in The Lancet. I thought it was a little bit odd. I, I, it's, not, it's certainly at odds with the data that I am seeing coming out of Israel and other places that suggests that for high-risk individuals, elderly people, frail uh, individuals, uh, immunocompromised and chronically ill people, boosters clearly are going to end up being an important part. It's not just Israel. Germany's doing it. UK is doing it. It's other places are as well. The big question right now is what about young, healthy people? There, I think the science is far less settled. Uh, but for higher risk people, absolutely, I think boosters are going to be necessary. And finally, Dr. Jai, even though COVID cases are, are, are rising, we're starting to see case numbers fall. We're, we're seeing uh, deaths go up, but case numbers are falling Uh, Is that a good sign, do you think? Are are we starting to get on the other side of the Delta variant? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So it is, we, the case numbers are starting to fall down about 10% from its peak, thank goodness. Um, you know, deaths will always lag a few weeks. I'm hoping that this is the beginning of a longer trend, but this is really about what we do next. If we stay on with indoor masking, if we ramp up testing, get more people vaccinated, the Delta variant can be put behind us, uh, but not if we sort of let everything go and get complacent. Dr. Ashish Jha, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, hours left in the California recall race, and now President Biden is hoping to boost Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom and some of the president's own agenda items at the same time. Plus, the massive effort now underway to resettle some 60,000 Afghan refugees inside the United States, and it is predictably not easy to do. We'll take you inside this delicate process. Stay with us. In our politics lead now, President Biden today making his first West Coast trip as president with stops in Idaho and California today, Colorado tomorrow. The president using his trip to push his infrastructure and climate change agendas and to give one final push in support of his fellow Democrat, California Governor Gavin Newsom. One day before the recall, CNN's Jeremy Diamond joins me now from Boise. And Jeremy, interesting choice to push climate change in ruby red Idaho. Uh, No doubt about it, Jake. This is a state that President Biden lost by 30 points back in the 2020 election. Uh, But when you think about it, in the last week, President Biden has visited red and blue states affected uh, by extreme weather events, which experts say are being made worse and more frequent uh, by the threat of climate change. And that is why you saw President Biden today arguing that climate change and and combating it shouldn't be a Republican or a Democratic issue, uh, instead saying that it's an American problem. Uh, And he talked about what his administration has done so far to combat those wildfires in the region. 22 of the 81 active large fires are here in the state of Idaho. Uh, But the president also talked about what uh, his administration wants to do going forward. And a lot of that has to do with that bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, which both of these uh, this state's Republican senators actually supported. And the president talked it up uh, while standing alongside uh, the Republican governor of the state of Idaho. Now, the president is also looking to push uh, that budget reconciliation plan that is moving its way uh, through both chambers of Congress. Uh, that is something that we expect President Biden to talk about tomorrow when he's in Denver, Colorado, talking about uh, the other climate-related uh, proposals included in that, including tax incentives, uh, for, example, uh, for example, for clean energy. As for today, the president is now headed to the state of California. He's expected to survey uh, the uh, damage of wildfires uh, in and around the Sacramento area. And then, of course, he's got that campaign event with Governor Gavin Newsom. Jake? All right, Jeremy Diamond in Boise, Idaho. Thanks so much. Now the non-policy politics Biden holding an event tonight with California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, who is hours away from a recall election where his job and his political future hang in the balance. And as CNN's Ken Law reports for us now, the Democratic Party in California is pulling out as many big names as they can to push their voters to turn out to try to save Newsom. Early ballots in California preparing to be counted when polls close across the state tomorrow night. With just hours left to vote, President Joe Biden is out west rallying Democrats to vote no in the recall of Governor Gavin Newsom. Vote no, 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 no. Newsom needs a simple majority to stay on the job. He's hit rally after rally 
up and down the state, telling Democrats the election is not just about California, but the national Democratic agenda. The contrast and the stakes could not be higher. This election is a matter of life and death. Public health is on the ballot. Policies on masks and vaccines that Democratic voters fear could roll back if Newsom is recalled. When you have another candidate who's very similar to what we had uh, four years ago, that's not what we want here in California. Barack Obama's kind of commercial for him. Uh, Joe Biden commercial. I was called the blackface of white supremacy. That candidate is Republican Larry Elder. He's among 46 names of challengers on the second part of the ballot. They're trying to uh, federalize this election when this is about California. In these final hours of campaigning, Elder is pulling a page from the Trump playbook, questioning the election results before the votes are even counted. We're going to follow lawsuits in a timely fashion. Um, what I believe is that no matter what they do, and I believe that there might very well be shenanigans, uh, as they were in the 2020 election. Don't think for a second this recall lives in isolation. His closing argument is, I will file a lawsuit because of the voter irregularities in this race with no evidence whatsoever. It's act two of the big lie. That's what we're up against, Democrats. Now, it's not just Elder throwing around these baseless claims of fraud, of election fraud. Donald Trump issued a statement today also saying and questioning the validity of mail-in ballots and throwing around these uh, accusations of election fraud. A reminder, Drake, Jake, not a single ballot has been counted yet. That doesn't start until after the polls close tomorrow night. Further proof that in these final hours that what's happening here in California is indeed a proxy war. Jake. Yeah, I mean, no evidence of any fraud, and yet they're talking about fraud. What to expect from a pig but a grunt, I suppose. Um, Kyung, is what you're seeing out there more Biden boosting Newsom, or is it Newsom trying to boost Biden's progressive agenda? That answer would be very different just a few weeks ago. Certainly, it was the governor then who really needed Joe Biden. This has really become a, a healthy marriage of sorts because now what the president potentially stands to gain is a governor with the wind at his back. We are hearing increasingly very positive vibes from the governor's office, feeling very confident about what's going to happen tomorrow, Jake. All right, Kyung La, thanks. I will see you tomorrow night. And tomorrow night, you can join us for CNN special coverage of the California governor recall election. It starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. Coming up, a massive effort now underway to resettle tens of thousands of Afghan refugees. While back in Afghanistan, the Taliban reverting to form and cracking down. We're going to go live to Kabul next. Stay with us. In our world lead right now, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is testifying on America's longest war and the massive interagency effort to resettle around 60,000 Afghans in the United States. They've met enormous human need. They've coordinated food, water, sanitation for thousands, tens of thousands of people. They're arranging medical care, including the delivery of babies. They're reuniting families who are separated and caring for unaccompanied minors. CNN's Oren Lieberman has some details from the Pentagon for us now on some hiccups in the effort, including several cases of measles among Afghan refugees at U.S. military bases, grounding refugee flights for at least a week. 
Ever since the first flights of evacuees landed at Dulles International Airport in early August, the number of Afghans coming to the United States has soared. The U.S. anticipates the arrival of more than 65,000 Afghan refugees by the end of the month. Already, the military has built what one official described as small cities on eight bases. Those bases now house 53,000 at-risk Afghans. Fort Bliss in Texas was the first to grant media access to see the facilities. Here, there is housing for more than 10,000 Afghans. They'll get COVID vaccines, medical screening, and the beginning of a new life. At Joint Base McGuire-Dix-Lakehurst in New Jersey, the Afghans have broken up their village into councils. The leaders of these councils meet with base officials, an Afghan society within a U.S. military facility. Already, two babies were born on different bases, some of the first new Americans from the Afghan evacuation. Some Afghans who were far along in their visa application left the bases within days, but that number, one U.S. official said, was not large. Many may be here much longer, months even, as they work through a complex visa process. At Dulles Airport, officials discovered three confirmed cases of measles among at-risk Afghans. Another case was confirmed at Fort Pickett in Virginia, and a fifth at Fort McCoy in Wisconsin. And there are no 100% guarantees with any of this, but I am comfortable with the extreme vetting process that we were briefed on today. The multi-layer, the biometric, all the background checks. The discovery of the highly contagious disease prompted the military to pause the flights of Afghan evacuees from Europe to the United States for at least seven days. We want uh, the, the, the people who work on these bases and the families who live there to know how, how seriously we're taking it. One Homeland Security official said this is likely one of the most important missions they'll ever work on as the U.S. tries to draw a better future for tens of thousands of Afghan evacuees. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was grilled on the security screening and the medical screening of Afghan evacuees before they enter the country. To help speed that screening, DHS has added some 150 employees at U.S. military bases and some 400 employees overseas to help move that screening along. But make no mistake, this is a process that will take time. It's unclear how long these Afghans will be on U.S. military bases, but the military says it's ready to house them as long as is needed. All right, CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Back in Afghanistan, a country on the verge of a complete collapse, according to the United Nations. Food is running out. The Taliban are reverting to form, beating journalists, jailing protesters, barring some girls from school, beating women in the streets. Let's get right to CNN's international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, who's in Kabul for us. Nick, a senior Taliban official told Reuters that women should not be allowed to work alongside men. Other Taliban officials have said... Differently, that women and girls can still work and still go to school under their conditions. Uh, What's the reality on the ground? The reality is that the Taliban have really yet to take strong control and take real direction on how they're going to run the country. We know what they're saying on education. That is going to be segregated. Girls can still go to school, but there'll be separate or divided classrooms. Uh, Women who worked in government offices have been told to stay at home and wait until the proper conditions have been made. If you go back 20-odd years when the Taliban were last in power, uh, that pause on women going to work in government offices lasted five years. It's not clear, um, really, if the Taliban are actually going to to implement some of those old policies. Are they really going to keep women sitting at home? Um, And part of the reason that the Taliban haven't made progress on these issues seems to be divisions 
that we're hearing here and what you've just explained, divisions within the Taliban about how to run the country. To that point, Mullah Barada, the deputy prime minister, the man who negotiated with the United States, essentially allowing the Taliban to come back to power, issued an audio recording and a written statement saying that he hadn't been killed or injured in a dispute and a shootout within the Taliban. The fact that he didn't appear on TV to say that has a lot of people here in Kabul worrying that there actually is a serious dispute going on and he may be uh, injured. So, you know, I think these are the underlying reasons that these issues haven't been resolved and they're not clear yet, Jake. And, and Nick, the United Nations has pledged more than a billion dollars in aid for Afghanistan. Is there any guarantee that that aid will reach the Afghans who need it, given the degree of corruption uh, in that country? Yeah, not clear. Not clear at all. The Taliban are saying, yes, they will guarantee that access. The UN is saying that there has to be an environment, a safe, secure environment, uh, where humanitarian aid officials can get out to the sort of, you know, and oversee these aid programs across the country. The, Caliban, the Taliban don't fully control and have security in all areas. They certainly don't have the institutions and the infrastructure built to sort of manage uh, the, the management of getting aid all across the country. But it's a desperate situation. 90% of the people here live on less than $2 a day. The UN says close to half the population, 18 million, uh, depend on humanitarian aid. 40% of the GDP of, of the country under the last government uh, came from uh, remissions of aid to the country. So it is a difficult situation. I think the international community in the United States is offering $64 million worth of medical aid to come in through UN organizations and other NGOs not to go directly to the Taliban. Um, it, it's, it, it's going to be fraught. I mean, let's, let's be really clear about that. It's going to be fraught. The international community wants to do it because the need is great. Uh, but it's far from clear that, um, again, it's one of these things here, Jake, it has to be said. It's just far from clear how it's actually actually going to be managed. This is a country that's going through a huge, huge monumental change right now. CNN's Nick Robertson in Kabul, Afghanistan. Thank you. Stay safe, my friend. Coming up, a man with a machete and a bayonet arrested today outside the Democratic headquarters in D.C. in a truck that had white supremacist and Nazi symbols inside. The details and the fears of new violence at the Capitol later this week. That's next. In our national lead, while marking the 20th anniversary of September 11th, former President George W. Bush, speaking at the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, warned that domestic extremists at home pose a threat to this nation, perhaps as much as foreign terrorists do. He alluded to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and right now, D.C. is preparing for a rally related to that attempted insurrection. The U.S. Capitol Police Chief briefed congressional leaders today on Saturday's right-wing rally in D.C., which is in support of those arrested for their actions on January 6th. It's a rally that law enforcement officials are warning could very well turn violent. They're certainly concerned. CNN's Melanie Zadona joins me now from Capitol Hill. And Melanie, what did we learn from this Capitol Police briefing uh, about their plans for Saturday? 
Well, Jake, we are starting to get a very clear picture of exactly how the Capitol Police are preparing for the September 18th rally and just how seriously they're taking the threat. Earlier today, the Capitol Police chief told us that the temporary fencing will go back up around the Capitol later this week and come back down a few days after, assuming everything goes well. The Capitol Police also issued an emergency declaration, which will allow them to deputize outside law enforcement officials to help with response efforts that day if needed, although no mention of the National Guard calling them up. Uh, And finally, the Capitol Police have been holding regular planning meetings as well as hosting security briefings for officers and lawmakers. And it's worth noting that this level of transparency and communication is a stark contrast from January 6th when there was a serious lack in intelligence sharing. And that was actually cited as one of the reasons for the security failures that day. Even Speaker Nancy Pelosi, after the briefing, said it seems like the planning this time around is much better, although she also noted she doesn't have much to go off of since congressional leaders did not receive a similar briefing ahead of January 6th. All right, so that's the planning by law enforcement. What about the planning by the the protesters? They don't have President Trump proclaiming, you know, that this date is the one to come to Washington, et cetera, as they did for January 6th. Is this protest, or whatever it ends up being, expected to be similar in scale to what we saw January 6th? Well, it's probably going to be smaller in scale for a few reasons. Number one, the crowd size estimate is somewhere in the hundreds right now. There are no high-profile speakers that we're aware of. And it's also taking place on a Saturday when the House is in recess. Uh, But that being said, the Capitol Police confirmed our reporting from last week that there is some concerning online chatter surrounding this event. They are clearly bracing for potential violence and unrest. And not to mention, the Capitol Police just announced today that last night they arrested a California man who was near the DNC in his truck, had multiple illegal knives, and also had white supremacy images on his truck. So even though we don't know whether he was planning to attend the September 18th rally, it is a reminder of the type of very real threats facing Capitol Hill. Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill, thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. Joining us now, the former Assistant Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, uh, Julia Kayam joins us now. Good to see you, Julia. Thanks. So let me ask you, so uh, the Capitol Police arrested this, uh, this man yeah. uh, early, early this morning outside the DNC headquarters. Uh, he was armed with a bayonet, with a, with a machete. His car had uh, at least uh, swastikas uh, drawn inside the door. You see one right there. Uh, he was you know, speaking about white supremacist ideologies, if it can be called an ideology. It's unclear uh, if he was attending, if he's planning on attending the rally uh, Saturday. Um, but either way, it, doesn't, it, it kind of almost doesn't even matter because it's, it's all really part of the same uh, extremist right-wing ideology that's been uncorked and in some ways mainstreamed by the former president. The stew. It's the hate stew. And so the, the idea that you're going to separate anti-Semitism from racism, from Islamophobia, it's all part of the same. And it was nurtured for years and years uh, from the president, as we, as we know, as we saw. It was done sort of indirectly at first, and then we saw it done much more directly for the protest or the insurrection on January 6th. And now we're coming up to a Saturday. So, so first of all, it only takes one guy, right? So this could have been very damaging. We don't know how many people are going to show up on Saturday. And one of the reasons why you're seeing the Capitol Police come out so publicly, so strongly, is one, they can. They're not being stopped by any political entity. And I think, they're, I think they are putting Republicans who nurture this stuff on notice, right? In other words, they're coming out publicly and saying, we know this is a threat. If you nurture it, if you embrace it, if you show up, uh, it's on you because the Capitol Police are doing everything they can at this stage, including putting up fencing again. Yeah, and don't don't forget, a few weeks ago, there was 
Another yeah. right-wing extremist with a, who allegedly had bomb-making materials, he was arrested. And Republican Congressman Mo Brooks issued yeah. basically a statement of, like, I, I disagree with his methods, but I understand why people yeah. are being driven to this kind of statement, which is nuts, and no major Republican right. decried it. And, and I mean, in, in the lead story, in the political story before this one, you, you mentioned that the president is already uh, undermining the California recall vote by saying it's fraudulent or mail-in. That's part of the same narrative, right, that things are being taken away from these people, that the voting is not accurate. Remember, Saturday's rally is is not about Trump being president. It is about the fact that the people who are arrested and in jail at January 6th insurrection are freedom fighters. Right, who committed, the people who exactly, committed crimes. Right, exactly. So l- l- let me, you and I were, were covering the 9-11 yeah. commemoration uh, on Saturday in lower Manhattan, uh, and it was pretty remarkable. You and I both listened to former President George W. Bush uh, who very directly uh, talked about both foreign Islamist terrorists and, the, and, and domestic extremists and how they both pose a threat. Uh, let's run a little bit of that excerpt. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdainful pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, They are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them. I mean, he's drawing a a direct line, not only between al-Qaeda and other Islamist extremists and domestic extremists, including the January 6th insurrectionists, but how the first threat was not listened to. And and this and the second one needs to needs to be paid attention. Right. To. That's I mean, we talked about this as connective tissue that Bush, of all people, was the one to raise it. No one else had had raised January 6th until the former President Bush, uh, the connective tissue between 9-11 and January 6th of the hate. And in some ways, the the hate that was unleashed after September 11th, the xenophobia, the Islam, the Islamophobia, the uh, later the anti-Semitism that became part of unfortunately, some of the extreme reactions to the attacks on September 11th. But like you, I also think uh, the former President Bush was warning us that he underestimated uh, the al-Qaeda threat on September 10th, and, and we should not underestimate this threat uh, as, as the former President Donald Trump already starts to try to undermine the recall vote in California. Yeah, and not, not surprisingly, even though former President Bush didn't mention Donald Trump, he, he took it, per, yes, exactly. he took it personally. Right. And we'll t- you must be talking about yeah, me, right? Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Thank you, Juliet KM. Thank you so much. A major tropical storm is hurtling towards the Gulf Coast right now, right after Hurricane Ida devastated so many parts of the region. The fears of more flooding with almost two feet of rain predicted. Stay with us. some breaking news for you in our national lead. The brand new forecast for Tropical Storm Nicholas just came out. It may reach hurricane strength in the next few hours. Let's go to meteorologist Tom Sater. The storm is on track to hit the Texas coast before crossing Louisiana. Is that right? Right. Yeah, don't take this one lightly, Jake. I mean, nothing's been typical with these storms this year or any year. I mean, we're at the 14th named storm of the year. And on average, we wouldn't hit the 14th named storm until November 18th. But nothing's been average in the last several years, and this is extraordinary as well. Remember when Ida moved in toward New England area? The Weather Prediction Center issued a very rare level 4 out of 4 for excessive rainfall and flooding. 
Only 4% of the year, a days in the year, have this alert, but they're responsible for 40% of the fatalities. So this is important. Do not pay attention that it's just a tropical storm. Sure, it could become a hurricane. The waters are like 87, 88 degrees here, and it's moving, though, at a slow pace, and that's the problem. We expect this to really put on the brakes, much like Hurricane Harvey did a few years ago, and we remember those pictures. We do have a hurricane watch in pink, but again, it doesn't matter. You're not going to know the difference between a 65-mile-per-hour storm or 75. We do have an issue with some surge. Sure, there's an area here of three to five feet, but this is all about the excessive rainfall and the rates that we may see. Urban flooding is going to be a problem. Remember the images that we had in Pennsylvania, in New Jersey, in areas of New York. Submerged cars, water rescues, 911 calls to get evacuations from home. Sure, some of the coastal areas can handle a good 6 to 12 inches, but you get in the cities and the communities with the concrete and the steel, and that includes Houston. Houston area, especially areas to the east, we're going to see the possibility of 8 to 16 inches. Some areas will see 20 or more, and that is a big problem. Corpus Christi's already had their heavier amounts earlier today. It looks like, Jake, they're on the back side of this. But as the storm system moves up, it's going to spread to the east. In areas, we do not want it. We've got over 12 million now that are under flash flood watches, and that includes areas that were hit by Laura in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and, of course, Ida. They could have flooding from this storm system as well, and we've got exposed homes. We've got power that is still out. This storm means business, and, again, it's going to take a couple of days to move through this region, but it's all about the massive amounts of rainfall. I can't believe we're even saying there could be over 20 inches with a tropical storm. This could be a record breaker. Do not pay attention to the status. Nicholas means business with this one. All right, Tom Sater, good morning there. Thank you so much. Coming up next, in the hot seat, Secretary of State Antony Blinken facing members of Congress putting blame for the previous, on the previous administration for the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 